0: If you are a Christian who deeply cares about seeing others embrace the Word of God, then you know that life can be very discouraging at times. When you look around at society, and sadly sometimes even at the church, it can be very disheartening to see minimal, genuine response to the Word of God. That reality is depicted in our text this morning. So turn with me, if you are not already there, to Mark chapter 4. In our study of the Word of God this morning, we want to consider the parable of the soils in verses 1 through 20. Now I'm sure that some of you almost fainted when you came in this morning and saw that we were going to cover 20 verses, but the entire passage is a unit, and that's why we're going to take all of it in one message. Years ago, I heard a pastor in Florida by the name of Steve Kreloff preach on this text, It had such an impact in my life, and many of his thoughts have stayed with me ever since. This is a phenomenal passage of Scripture. Please follow along as I read our text for us, beginning in verse 1. Mark tells us, And again, Jesus began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat on it, or in it, on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. But other seed fell on good ground, and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables, so that seeing they may not see, or that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the Word is sown, when they, hear, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the Word that was sown in their hearts. These, likewise, are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the Word's sake, immediately they stumble." Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it or receive it, and bear fruit, some thirty fold, some sixty, and some a hundred. For 15 years, Jim Fix ran 80 miles a week. He was the author of the book, The Complete Book of Running. At the age of 52, he died of a massive heart attack while running on a Vermont road. He had a heart problem that he didn't know about because he refused to let his heart be examined. The fact is, many people are in the same condition spiritually. Their spiritual heart is not in good condition, but they refuse to let it be examined by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. This passage that we're going to consider this morning is one that, if we allow it, examines our hearts. And it helps answer the question, why is there so little genuine response to the Word of God today? I've heard many ask that question. Why is there so little genuine response to the Word of God? After all, there are more avenues of outreach than ever before, such as Christian films, television, radio, tracks, internet sites, mission works, ministries, Bible-preaching churches. Why is there so little genuine response to the gospel? Why do people hang around the church for a while or hang around Christianity for a while, then disappear or vanish or bail out or walk away? This parable tells us that the heart of every issue is the heart. This is often called the parable of the sower, but that's probably not the best title because the sower is the same in all four cases. It's the same sower all the time. The sower isn't really the issue in this parable. The soil is the issue. That's the point Jesus is making in this parable. There are various kinds of soils which represent various kinds of hearts. So with that in mind, let's consider this story together. In verse 1, Mark tells us, and again, Jesus began to teach by the sea. Of course, this would be the Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Now we need to acquaint ourselves with the context of these words. Matthew tells us in his gospel account that this took place on the very same day that the Jewish leaders officially rejected Jesus and committed the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They had seen all the evidence. Jesus had been ministering and teaching for well over a year by this time, maybe close to two years. But the leaders made their official decision that Jesus was satanic. That happened on this very day. But another event happened on this very day that is key to understanding this parable and why Jesus switched to teaching in parables. And that event is recorded in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, just back one chapter. Chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people, his own family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. That was the response of Jesus family his family felt like they had to protect Jesus from himself they felt like he was crazy insane illogical so his family refused to believe in him and the nation as a whole refused to believe in him and Matthew 13:1 says it was on that same day that Jesus began to speak to the crowds in parables, and he began speaking to them in parables with this parable, which is sort of the foundational parable to all of his parables. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus sat in a boat that was probably just off the shore. Sitting was a typical rabbinical position for teaching, and Jesus chose to do this from a boat because the crowds were so large that this was the best way to accommodate them. So picture in your mind Jesus just offshore, sitting in a boat, and a large crowd of people on the shore, and many places around the Sea of Galilee, the shoreline goes up almost immediately. So you could have sort of an amphitheater type of setting, and so Jesus chooses this setup to administer His teaching. Verse 2 says, Then He taught them many things by parables, and said to them in His teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some of the seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. The wayside refers primarily to the narrow paths that separated one field from another in ancient Israel. Travelers also used these paths as they traveled. They were allowed to use these paths to walk between the farmer's fields. Naturally, they were packed down and untilled. Verse 5 says, some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately sprang up because it had no depth of earth. Now, when you read these words, don't picture in your mind a field with a bunch of rocks sitting out in it. The farmers were smart enough to remove the rocks from their fields. This wasn't a field of exposed, loose rocks sitting there. This was a field of thin soil over rock beds that were just below the surface. These rock beds were usually limestone. That's the, the makeup of the land of Israel. Because the roots could not penetrate deep, Jesus says the crop would spring up above ground much faster than it normally would. And that is the case in farming in some of those areas in Israel. For a short time, these crops looked better and healthier than the others because more of the plant showed above ground, and it grew actually faster. So initially it looks good. looks really good. Verse six, Jesus continues the parable. He says, "But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop or yielded no fruit." But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirty fold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word hear, H E A R, is clearly a key word for Jesus in this section of Mark's Gospel. Because the word occurs 13 times in this chapter. Hear, 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 hear. And at this point, it is emphasized strongly by our Lord's statement, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Furthermore, Jesus began this parable back in verse 1 with the word listen. Or hear. Beloved, we need to hear this parable. We need to understand this parable. It's important to Jesus that we hear this, that we understand it. Verse 10 tells us, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables." Now, at this point, Jesus introduces the concept of mystery. The definition of a biblical mystery is a truth that was not revealed to the Old Testament saints, but has now been revealed to the New Testament saints. The mystery that Jesus is referring to here is not the kingdom, because the Old Testament saints knew all about the kingdom. The kingdom is promised throughout Hebrew Scripture. It's described throughout Hebrew Scripture, but the mystery is is the form the kingdom has now taken with the king absent from the earth during the church age. This spiritual form of the kingdom, which we are now in, is something the Old Testament saints knew nothing about. They only knew of the earthly kingdom that is yet to come, but they didn't know that the kingdom would take this mystery form with Jesus reigning in the heart's and lives of his people. We are now, beloved, we are now in the mystery form of the kingdom. Jesus the king is not bodily present here reigning on earth. But he's still a king. He's still the king over a kingdom. Colossians 1.13 speaks about this form of the kingdom when it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is a form of the kingdom the Old Testament saints knew nothing of because it's not presented in Hebrew Scripture. So Jesus says this parable is about the mystery form of the kingdom. It's about the the form the kingdom has taken now between the time the Messiah goes back into heaven and before he comes the second time to bring the earthly kingdom. It's about this time frame that we're now in. But why did Jesus say that the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven were not given to them? Verse 12, he says, So that, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. This sounds strange. This sounds like Jesus is saying he doesn't want them to turn. He doesn't want their sins to be forgiven. What is Jesus saying here? This is very similar to what the Apostle John said in John 12. So let's turn over there. Maybe it will give us some insight into what Jesus is saying. Turn over past Luke to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. John says, But although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn. So that I should heal them. Now, notice very carefully and closely what this passage is saying. The end of verse 37 says, They would not believe. Then the first part of verse 39 says, They could not believe. What happened? God's judicial blindness set in, it was too late. They would not believe. They would not believe. They would not believe. This went on for a year or two. They would not believe, and eventually it came to the point where they could not believe. Do you realize that you can choose for so long that you will not believe, that your heart can grow so hard that you cannot believe? Do you realize that you can reject the Bible so long that eventually it will all seem like a bunch of nonsense to you? That's what happened with the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They had the immense privilege of the Messiah in their midst, teaching them, ministering to them, healing for them, casting out demons. But they rejected the truth so long that Jesus decided to speak to them in parables. You see, by the time you get to Mark 4, Jesus has already been teaching and ministering for well over a year, maybe close to two So they had plenty of time to hear him out, but they chose to reject him. Again, I warn you, you can reject the Bible so long that eventually it will all seem like a bunch of nonsense to you. For example, Ted Turner, who was once named Humanist of the Year, planned to be a missionary at one point in his life. Now he says that the death of Jesus for our sins is a bunch of nonsense. How can this happen? This explains it here in John 12 as well as our text in Mark chapter 4. So let's go back there to that parable in Mark 4. Now we make sense of this quote from Jesus in verse 12. It finally got to the point to where Jesus decided to speak to them in parables because they'd already had plenty of time to hear what he said to them plainly. So after that, Jesus begins to explain the parable. Verse 13, and he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. This is the hard heart. Remember, the the focus of this parable is on the condition of our hearts. This is the hard heart. This person may be hostile against the gospel, argumentative against the gospel, or he may be indifferent to the gospel or apathetic to the gospel. He may be nice, polite, friendly, kind, but his heart is hard to the Word of God. There's no penetration so Satan comes and removes the Word. How does Satan do this? Well, he does so in a number of ways. Let me mention a few of the most common ones. One way Satan snatches the Word is by sending along false teachers who when someone's contemplating the gospel, these false teachers say, "Ah, oh, there's no such thing as hell. You're not sinful. The Bible isn't really the inerrant Word of God. Too many contradictions, mistakes. Another way Satan snatches the word is by making people feel comfortable in their religion. How could everybody in our religion be wrong? I mean, look at how many thousands of people are in our denomination. How many millions in our denomination. All these people can't be wrong. Another way Satan snatches the word is by saying the cost is too high. Well, if you receive Christ, you'll have to give up this and stop doing that. You might lose your job, etc. It's too high of a price. Another way Satan snatches the word is through pride. You're not not really that bad. Sure, you've made some mistakes in life. We all have, but, but you're not really an awful sinner. Come on. Another way Satan snatches the word is to confuse the issue by pointing out Christians who have bad reputations. Well, if he's a Christian, you're telling me he's a Christian? I don't want anything to do with that stuff. If she's a Christian, forget it. Another way Satan snatches the word is by throwing up dishonest intellectual arguments such as, the Bible can't be trusted because it's not scientifically accurate. You can't trust the Bible. It's not historically accurate. Another way Satan snatches the word is by giving people a false sense of security by pointing out some kind of past decision. Ah, you did that years ago. Don't you remember when you were a kid? You said some little prayer in Sunday school or kids club. You don't need to worry about that stuff. You're fine. Another way Satan snatches the word is by encouraging postponement. You'll have time to decide on that later. I mean, you've got years ahead of you. Many more years to your life. Satan uses all of these methods, as well as others, to snatch the word out of the unresponsive heart. To snatch the word out of the hard heart when it hits And it doesn't penetrate, and it just sits there, and Satan scoops it up and discards it. But that's not the only kind of heart. Verse 16. These, likewise, are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, For the word's sake, immediately they stumble. This is category number two. This is the shallow heart. This is the person who makes a purely emotional decision about Jesus. There's no volitional or intellectual component to the decision. This person doesn't count the cost of true submission to Christ or doesn't realize the necessity of true biblical repentance. This is the kind of individual who might be attracted to the fact that God loves him, but it's purely, exclusively emotional. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't don't misconstrue this. True saving faith must have an emotional aspect to it. It's not emotionless, but that can't be the entire substance as it is in this case. This person has experienced a change in his emotions but not in his soul. By the way, some evangelistic methods really play to this kind of scenario. There are some evangelistic methods that seek to elicit a purely emotional response. They play on people's emotions, take advantage of people's emotions. And the great danger is that people who have this kind of emotional experience are often harder to reach than they were before they heard the message because they have been insulated from true salvation by a false profession. This is the kind of person, from Jesus' description here, this is the kind of person who may have a lot of zeal and enthusiasm right at first, but there's no brokenness over sin, no true sense of lostness, there's no repentance, no contrition, no humility, Maybe he sees Jesus as a counselor or problem solver, but not as a savior from sin, not as a savior from condemnation. So he or she hangs around for a while, but eventually bails out, Jesus says, because of internal conflict or external pressure. This is the kind of person who who may seem so excited about the Lord for a brief time, but then... He has some kind of conflict with someone in the church, so he just chucks the whole thing, walks away. Or maybe there's a price to pay to be associated with Christ. He's not willing to pay the price, so he bails out. The Apostle John, who was sitting here this day, hearing Jesus speak, would years later speak about this very thing or write about this very thing. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to the right, almost near the end of the New Testament, to 1 John chapter 2. First John, chapter two. John wrote these words very late in his life after he had been involved in ministry for a lot of years and seen a lot of things. and I'm sure he thought about Jesus' parable there in, in Mark 4, and here's what he wrote. First John 2:19. "They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. John had seen this countless times. People would hang around for a while, bail out, and John says, what a tragedy. It just demonstrated that they were never really of us, never really a part of us. Now compare that with what Peter said. Just back to the left, a couple letters. First Peter Chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 5, he refers to some believers in the first century, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter talks about true believers with genuine faith, enduring trials, heartache, but they rejoice knowing what is coming in the future. Let me tell you something, beloved. Trials and time. Reveal a lot about the true nature of a person's heart condition. Trials and time reveal a lot about the true nature of a person's heart condition. That's what Jesus was saying in Mark 4, and that's what John and Peter taught. So don't mistake emotion for conversion, don't mistake activity for conversion. And make sure you present an accurate picture of the gospel when you give it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't appeal exclusively on an emotional level. Now back to our text in Mark chapter 4. So Jesus has described two of the potential or possible heart conditions he has in mind. But he's not finished. Look at Mark chapter 4 verse 18. He says, Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. This is what I have titled the crowded heart. This is the person who's totally consumed with and preoccupied with his job, his responsibilities, his obligations, his goals, his pursuits, his hobbies, his interests. Maybe this is the person who loves money and nice things too much to be willing to let go of them for Christ. He's continually preoccupied with career or fashion or sports or whatever, just fill in the blank. Whereas the true believer struggles with loving the world, this person doesn't even struggle. There's no struggle. This person just loves the world. This person loves the world's values so much that the Word of God is just squeezed out. The heart is too crowded. It's like the story of the young man who was proposing to his girlfriend, and he said, I love you with all of my heart. I want you to marry me. I don't have a Cadillac or a bank account or a big house like John Brown, but I do love you and I will treat you well. His girlfriend responded, I love you too and I think I want to marry you, but tell me a little bit more about John Brown. That's the kind of response this person gives to the call of Christ to follow. Well, I, I think I want to follow you, Lord. I think I do, but, but hold it. Let me see what the world has to offer first. That's the crowded heart. Notice the problem in these first three cases. In the first case, the devil snatches the Word. In the second case, the flesh overrules the Word. And in the third case, the world crowds out the Word. The world, the flesh, and the devil, often spoken of in the New Testament, often warned about in the New Testament. The world, the flesh, and the devil win out over the Word in these first three cases. But there's one other category. Verse 20. Jesus said, But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it and bear fruit. Some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. This is the receptive heart. Notice that Jesus calls this the good soil. In other words, the other soils weren't any good. The other soils represent unacceptable responses to the Word of God. The other soils represent lost, unsaved, unredeemed men and women, but this is the good soil. That doesn't mean that this group of people had good hearts before conversion, because we know what Scripture says. Romans 3.12 says, There is none who does good, no, not one. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But the hearts represented in this fourth group, are good in the sense that they are receptive to God's Word. The Spirit of God has cultivated these hearts and they're receptive to God's truth. Notice that Jesus adds the phrase, accept it, to this group. They hear the Word of God and accept it. They hear the Word of God and receive it. They don't just hear it and stop there. They hear it and and take it in. The implication is that the other three groups didn't really accept the truth they heard. They heard it. They didn't receive it. That's why we say the other three groups represent unsaved, unconverted, unredeemed people. But this group brings forth fruit, which is the evidence of life. All believers produce some fruit. As Warren Wiersbe put it in his commentary on Matthew, "...fruit is the test of true salvation." Unless there is fruit in the life, there is not saving faith in the heart, end quote. This is exactly what John the baptizer taught from the very beginning. Let me show you this in the previous gospel. Go back one book to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And notice what John the baptizer says in this text. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair. With a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. True believers bear fruit. Dr. Harry Ironside, that great Bible teacher of the past, said this, quote, There are a great many believers who bear very little fruit, but all bear some fruit. All who have life bear some fruit. If there is not fruit, you can be sure there is no life, no real union with Christ, end quote. What is fruit then? If all believers bear at least some fruit, what is fruit? What does Scripture describe as fruit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23 teaches that fruit is Christ-like character. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Hebrews thirteen five teaches that fruit is a life of thankfulness and praise. If you're a negative, grumpy, complainer, then you're not bearing this kind of fruit. Romans 1, 13 teaches that fruit is ministry to other believers. This would include encouraging other believers, building them up, edifying them, teaching them, discipling them, bearing one another's burdens. Romans 6.22 teaches that fruit is righteous living. True godliness, holy living is fruit, saying no to sin, yes to righteousness. Romans 15.23 and Philippians 4.17 teach that fruit is giving financially to support the Lord's work. John 4, 36 teaches that fruit is being instrumental in bringing others to faith in the Lord Jesus either by sowing or by reaping. These are the kinds of things that are considered fruit by the Scripture. Christ-like character, a life of thankfulness and praise, ministry to other believers, holy, righteous living, supporting financially the Lord's work, being instrumental in bringing others to faith in Christ, either by sowing or reaping. All believers produce some fruit, but certainly there are varying amounts depending on submission to Christ, obedience, commitment to the Word of God. And by the way, this is not merely a New Testament concept. Not at all. This is also found in Hebrew Scripture. Go back with me to Psalm 1. All the way back into Hebrew Scripture. (coughs) Psalm 1. And look at what the very first psalm has to say. The opening psalm of the Hebrew songbook. Psalm 1, verse 1. "Blessed, How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This is exactly what Jesus taught in John 15 about abiding in Him. In John 15, 8, He said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. This is what Jesus was talking about in Mark chapter 4 when He says, Believers will bear some fruit, some 30 fold, some 60, some 100. It's different among Christians. It's different. It's not all the same, but all believers will bear some fruit. So let me ask you this morning, as I said at the beginning, this is a passage, Mark 4, if we allow it, it's a passage that examines our hearts. Don't be like Jim Fix, who refused to let his heart be examined and died of a massive heart attack at the age of 52. Don't be like that spiritually. Let your heart be examined. Which category are you in? Where would you fit in all of this? Is your heart a hardened heart? You hear the Word, and it just never penetrates. It never goes beyond that. And so then you dismiss it because Satan comes and snatches the Word by deceiving you in some way. Oh, you don't need to take that seriously. You don't need to believe that stuff. Have you rejected the Word of God? Dismissed it? Probably most in this room don't fit into that category. Certainly could be some. But is your heart a shallow heart? Intense emotion at first. Oh, this is exciting. This is great. But there's no depth, no root. So eventually, when something comes along that doesn't sit well with you, internal, external conflict, whatever, you just, I don't know about that anymore. That's the shallow heart. Or is your heart the crowded heart? Just so many things in your life, so many pursuits, so many things to focus on, that the Word of God is just crowded right out of your heart? Or is it a receptive heart? If it is a receptive heart that bears fruit, then ask yourself if you're allowing the Lord to produce much fruit through you. Is your life characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control? Is your life characterized by thankfulness, appreciation to God for His goodness, praise to God? Do you seek to excel in building up and ministering to other believers, praying for them, bearing their burdens, whatever it happens to be, practicing the one another's of the New Testament? Are you living a righteous life? Saying no to sin? Or are there secrets in your life that no one knows about? Maybe not even your roommate or your family or your friends. Nobody knows about. But you're secretly pursuing sin in some way. Are you giving financially to support the Lord's work? Is that a priority to you? Is your desire to be used of God as an instrument to bring others to faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're one who plants, one who waters, one who cultivates the soil, one who reaps the harvest. Remember, child of God, if these things are not in our lives in abundance, then we're not abiding in Christ like we ought to, and we're not seeing to it that His words abide in us. So what is Jesus saying to us in this, this parable in Mark chapter 4? One of the things He's saying is this. Most people who hear the Word of God... Now now hear this. We're not talking about just people out in society who never hear. Most people who hear the Word of God won't respond properly to it. Three out of four didn't in the parable. Most won't respond properly to the Word of God, but some will. God always has His few. And you know what? That should keep us encouraged in evangelism. Because if you're a Christian, then realize it's not your responsibility to get results. God doesn't demand that you get results. God will take care of the results. It's our responsibility to throw the seed. Just throw it. Just be faithful to throw it. Sometimes it lands on hard-packed soil, sometimes on a crowded, sometimes on shallow, sometimes on good soil. Just keep throwing the seed and let God take care of the results. That's what the Lord is teaching us in that great parable in Mark chapter 4. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow in closing this morning, one final time I want to urge you to consider just where you fit in all of this. What is the condition of your heart? Hard? Crowded? Shallow? Receptive? Receptive? You know, even if you're a Christian, it's possible for us as Christians to have hard hearts. I mean, in the parable, Jesus had a specific group in mind. But by way of application, it's possible for us to have hard hearts or shallow hearts or crowded hearts. So we don't want to pass that off as saying, oh, well, at least I'm I'm a Christian, so I don't have to worry about those other things. No, we still should be concerned about those. But just ask yourself, better than that, maybe just ask the Lord right there in the quietness of your heart, Lord, where do I fit in all of this? What is the condition of my heart? And however the Spirit of God prompts you, respond to it. Don't don't dismiss the word. Don't just hear it and refuse to accept it. And don't don't just hear it and refuse to act on it. However the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, act on it. Take it in. Be responsive. Father, as we close in prayer this morning, we recognize that probably represented in a group of this this size is quite a diversity, a diversity of heart conditions. There are probably some here with hard hearts, just really no interest in the gospel, just believing the lies of Satan who snatches the word. There are others who have an interest, but it's all emotional, and sadly it won't last. It's just a shallow heart. There are others who have a crowded heart. They they kind of have an interest, but the interest just keeps going lower and lower on the rung. It's just everything else is more important. Everything else takes precedent. And then there are those who have receptive hearts. And if we have receptive hearts, we should really, really look at our lives to say, am I allowing the Lord to produce much fruit through me. Lord, there's so much, so much in this text by way of application for us, and we're thankful that your Spirit can take these truths and apply them to each of us right where we're at, right where we need to be spoken to, whatever we need to address in our lives. May we do that so that we're not merely hearers, but doers of the Word. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.